0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for all things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. By St. George and St. Denis. A poem accompanied its presentation, praising the young king, born by descent and title of right, justly to reign in England and in France. Then, As soon as the festivities at Westminster were over, preparations began to take the young king to his much-advertised Second Kingdom. On St. George's Day, April 23, 1430, a massive expedition left the ports of Sandwich and Dover bound for Calais. This was essentially a mobile court, complete with hundreds of servants, cooks, clergymen, clerks, soldiers, doctors, the king's teachers, eight dukes and earls, and the king himself. After a short stay in Calais, the court moved slowly to Rouen, and bided its time until the route up the Seine to Paris was thought safe enough for the king to travel. They would wait more than a year. After heavy fighting aided by large numbers of soldiers sent from England at vast cost, a route was finally cleared. The process was helped immensely by the capture by Burgundian forces of Joan of Arc on May the 23rd, 1430, during a skirmish outside the besieged town of Copenia. Although she attempted several times to escape from prison, she was always recaptured. She was finally sold to the English and tried as a heretic, in deeply partisan proceedings underpinned by the occupiers' desire for revenge on a woman who had humiliated them for many years. Just over a year after her capture, Joan was burned to death in the market square of Rouen on May 31st, 1431. Her ashes were scooped up and thrown in the Seine. In early December... Henry made his way northeast to Paris. It remained impossible to crown him in Reims, but the ceremony could just as well be held at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, where all Anglo Burgundian France could gather with sufficient magnificence. The king entered the city beneath a giant azure canopy, decorated with fleur de lis, and rode along dirty streets, sanitized by being draped with linen. One was turned into a river of wine thronging with mermaids, while seasonal Christmas plays were performed on an outdoor stage by citizens in elaborate disguise. A giant lily spouted milk and wine for the crowds to drink. In a presentation to the king at the Châtelet, a seat of government on the right bank of the Seine, a pageant was displayed on a stage decked with gold, tapestries, and the dual arms of England and France. A look-alike Henry VI sat centre-stage in state, wearing a scarlet hood, while doppelganger dukes of Bedford and Burgundy held up to him more English and French arms, along with various documents advertising the king's right-wiseness. All of this pageantry was highly amusing and agreeable even to the most sceptical observers. Yet there was heartbreak amid the festivities. Isabeau of Bavaria, widow of the mad King Charles VI, grandmother of the young king and mother of the Dauphin, was present in the city, staying in the Hôtel Saint-Paul. An witness wrote, when she saw the young King Henry, her daughter's son near her, he at once took off his hood and greeted her and she immediately bowed very humbly towards him, and then turned away in tears. On a freezing Sunday, December 16th, 1431, Henry's second coronation finally took place. Despite all the grandstanding, it didn't strike observers as anything like as impressive an occasion as that which had taken place in Westminster. It was performed in a hurry, and the parisians felt peeved that cardinal beaufort performed the coronation rather than a native bishop due to the crush of people pickpocketing was rife the hall prepared for the banquet was too small and the food wrote an eyewitness was shocking it had been cooked too far in advance and wasn't even considered suitable to be sent as leftovers to the city's paupers the court enjoyed christmas in paris but Henry was whisked back to Rouen by the first week of the new year, and left Calais for Dover on January 29, 1432. It was noted that he left Paris without carrying out any of the usual bequests of a new king, releasing prisoners, cutting taxes, and offering a few legal reforms. Henry was the first king ever to be anointed as ruler of the two realms, but it was very clear which one he preferred. He returned to London on a bright, windy Thursday in March, and was greeted with a now familiar scene. He came to London, and there was worshipfully received of the citizens in white gowns and red hoods, wrote one chronicler. The sheer volume of public display and spectacle announcing the child's all-conquering status was visibly dazzling, technically impressive, and very expensive. It also spoke to the seriousness with which Henry's polity on both sides of the Channel took his claim to the dual monarchy, and how fervently they were willing to protect his father's legacy. Yet at the same time, It demonstrated the hollowness of the two crowns. The louder the English shouted about Henry's hereditary right to rule over France, the more obvious was their basic insecurity. As long as the Dauphin lived, an anointed rival with a separate centre of political gravity and claim to rightful kingship, English propaganda was just that. Parchments and pageantry inflicted on an increasingly uneasy populace. Chapter 4 Owain Tidder. The Welshman was fleeing through Warwickshire, heading in the direction of North Wales, when messengers sent from the royal council caught up with him. He had left the capital in a hurry, acutely aware that his liberty relied on getting out of England as quickly as possible. He was travelling light, because he had packed in haste, and also because he had had very little to pack in the first place. The valuables in the baggage train that accompanied his small party were a hotchpotch of treasure and trinkets, a dozen expensive gold cups, and a few silver salt cellars, vases, a pair of candlesticks, spice-plates, chapel ornaments, and, rather strikingly, Two basins decorated with roses and heraldic arms in the bottom, and smaller gilt roses around the rims. This hall was later valued at a hundred and thirty-seven pounds ten shillings and fourpence-a decent sum, but hardly a fortune for a man who had until recently been living in regal comfort. The messengers told him he was to travel swiftly back to London, and he would be protected on his journey by a grant of safe conduct. This was a promise the man looked upon with great scepticism, telling the messenger that the said grant so made sufficed him not for his surety. He had seen enough of English politics to know that a Welshman's safety was never entirely guaranteed when he ventured east of the borderlands. But the messenger insisted, so the man turned back, heavy-hearted, toward London. His name, to English tongues at least, was Owen Tudor. His ancestors were famous in their homelands, the ancient Principality of Gwynedd in North Wales, which included the rugged, chilly mountains of Snowdonia and the fertile Isle of Anglesey. They were known as a line of administrators, servants, priests, and soldiers who had given loyal service both to the native princes and to the English kings who had conquered Gwynedd in the late thirteenth century. Tidir was a popular name for the men of the family. Owen's great-great-grandfather was called Tidia Hen. His grandfather was known as Tidia Ap Goronwy, and his father was Meredith Ap Tidir. Ap in Welsh means son of. In Wales, Owen had therefore been known as Owain Ap Meredith Ap Tidia, until confused English attempts to normalise the barbaric and strange Celtic language came up with Owen Fitz Meredith, Owen Meredith, Owain Tida, and eventually Owen Tudor. The generations of distinguished Welshmen from whom Owen Tudor sprang had established a dynasty with land and plenty of local prestige. But Owen's father and uncles had fallen into disgrace after allying with their cousin Owain Glyndŵr against King Henry IV during the Great Welsh Revolt that broke out in 1400 and raged until 1415. Owen was born around the beginning of the revolt, so he grew up in a family embroiled in more than a decade's plotting and violence— And who suffered accordingly when the rebel's fortunes began to fail? Glyndua was commanding guerrilla-style raids between 1409 and 1412, but by September 1415 he had disappeared into hiding and retirement. He probably died the following year, and although his son and successor was pardoned by Henry V in 1417, many others who had fought in the revolt on the Welsh side were dealt with severely stripped of their lands, banned from office-holding, and replaced by men loyal to the crown. Meredith Ap had his estates confiscated for bearing arms against the crown. And Meredith's brother Rhys was executed for treason in Chester in 1412. The stain of rebellion and treachery had lain upon Owen almost since birth. It was in his blood." Despite all this ignominy, however, Owen Tudor had done something extraordinary in the thirty-seven years or so that he had been alive. He had not merely raised himself up to the status of gentleman and plantagenet associate that had been enjoyed by his predecessors, but had gone well beyond, embedding himself in the very heart of English royalty. For the last decade he had been the lover, husband, and secret companion of Catherine de Valois, Queen Dowager of England. Catherine's life in England hadn't been quite what she expected when she married Henry V in Troyes. A twenty-year-old widow, within two years of her arrival in the foreign realm, Catherine was defined principally by her motherhood for much of the decade after Henry V's death, her life was arranged around the needs and occasional public appearances of the infant king. She travelled everywhere with him, and her income, drawn from the generous dower settled upon her by Parliament, contributed handsomely to the running costs of the king's household at the rate of seven pounds a day. She was a prominent figure on religious feast days and at great occasions of state, which included sitting in pride of place next to the altar at Henry's English coronation in 1429. When the king was taken to France, she accompanied him as far as Rouen, although she returned to England long before he was crowned in Paris, which spared her the uncomfortable sight of seeing her son crowned in direct rivalry to her brother Charles VII. But when the king came home, Catherine's role diminished from 1430 the Queen ceased to live with her son. Their households became formally and financially separate, never to be reunited. She continued to describe herself in letters, Catherine, Queen of England, daughter of King Charles of France, mother of the King of England, and Lady of Ireland. But she travelled on her own itinerary, and joined the royal court only on ceremonial occasions. Otherwise, her life was her own. Freed from the deadly responsibilities of motherhood, Queen Catherine's position was thus now a curious one. England's other dowager queen, Henry IV's widow, Joan of Navarre, was over sixty, coming to the end of a life that had petered out on the fringes of aristocratic importance, her reputation tainted by false and outrageous accusations of witchcraft cooked up against her in 1419 by her own confessor. Catherine, by contrast, was young, wealthy, and endowed with estates spread far and wide across England and Wales. In a world bonded by landed power, she was an attractive woman, and according to the tittle-tattle of one English chronicler she was unable fully to curb her carnal passions. This phrase rings with the same sort of snide misogyny that had been hurled at Catherine's mother, Isabeau of Bavaria, but all the same it reflected the fact that Catherine had, by virtue of her sex and sexuality, the potential to influence English politics if she should remarry. And indeed, after young Henry's coronations, the Queen Mother's sexual conduct became a matter of high intrigue. Queen Dowagers didn't, as a rule, marry Englishmen. If they wedded at all, they did so out of the country, to make a clean break for the politics of the crown. A queen mother who married into the English nobility could give her husband an invaluable position of proximity and access to the king. For a strong, self-possessed adult king, this would not necessarily be a concern, but these weren't the conditions of the minority. Those who had read enough royal history to recall the dark days of the 1320s knew that upon the accession of fourteen-year-old Edward III, the Queen Dowager Isabella of France had ruled for three years in her son's name, and that her rule had been perverted by her lover Sir Roger Mortimer, who used his easy access to power for tyrannical ends. Mortimer had taken advantage of his position to order the murder of the king's father, and to stage the judicial murder of the king's uncle. He persuaded the king to agree to a shamefully one-sided treaty with the Scots, then rewarded himself with the grand new title of Earl of March, sustained by a massive land grab on the estates of disaffected English noblemen, many of whom were forced into exile for fear of their lives. Mortimer had only been removed when the teenage king ordered a violent coup to reclaim control of his own crown. One hundred years on, the English council could ill afford a repeat performance. In the mid-1420s, however, it was rumoured that Catherine had formed an attachment to Edmund Beaufort, Count of Mortin, the young nephew of Cardinal Beaufort. He was five years younger than her, and an ambitious soldier whose elder brothers had seen service in France, and spent long spells in French imprisonment. He was also of Plantagenet birth, a grandson of John of Gaunt, with a keen sense of his own high-blood and chivalric status. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, The rumours of his familiarity with the Queen provoked sharp alarm among the Royal Council, and particularly Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. There could be no more worrying situation to Gloucester than for the King's mother to marry into the circle of his Beaufort rivals, a scenario that the protector felt wasn't only to the detriment of national stability, but also a personal threat. It seemed that Gloucester's fears of a union between Catherine and Edmund Beaufort were well-founded, when, at the Leicester Parliament of 1426, a petition was introduced asking the Chancellor to grant to King's widows permission for them to marry at their will. There was no direct reference to Catherine, but he could hardly have referred to anyone else. The petition was deferred by the Chancellor for further consideration, but at the next Parliament, which opened in Westminster in the autumn of 1427, an unambiguous response was given. A statute was made that expressly forbade queens from remarrying without the special licence of an adult king. It claimed to seek the preservation of the honour of the most noble estate of queens of England, In effect, his purpose was to prevent Catherine from being wedded to an Englishman for at least a decade. The wording of the legislation made it clear that the cost of marrying the Queen Dowager was nothing short of financial ruin. He who acts to the contrary and is duly convicted will forfeit for his whole life all his lands and tenements. And so... Edmund Beaufort's dalliance with Catherine came to an abrupt legalistic end. We don't know if Edmund and Catherine continue to have a physical relationship, or if indeed they ever had one. If so, then Beaufort in particular would have been taking a massive personal risk, of the sort that he would in later life show every inclination to avoid. In any case, by 1431, the Queen had defied Parliament's ruling by another means, not by marrying a Beaufort, but by falling in love with a charming Welsh squire by the name of Owen Tudor. Quite how Tudor came to meet Queen Catherine remains a mystery. The truth buried beneath a number of romantic and comic stories spread in the centuries that followed, some designed to laud Owen's memory and others to deride it. Certainly Catherine had links with Owen's homeland. The lands assigned to her after Henry V's death comprised great swaths of North Wales, including Beaumaris, Flint, Montgomery, Bilf, and Harden. It's also possible that Owen, too, had links with the Queen's home country. In his late teens or early twenties he may have gone to war in France. A man listed as Owen Meredith, Served alongside Henry V's steward, Sir Walter Hungerford, in 1421, and since Hungerford was later the steward of young Henry VI's household, we can reasonably suggest that this may be how Owen found his way into Catherine's domestic sphere. More than that is hard to say. Mischievous stories dating from the late 15th and 16th centuries variously claim that he was a son of a tavern-keeper or a murderer, that he fought at Agincourt that he became the queen's servant or her tailor, that he and Catherine fell in love either because she caught sight of his naked body while he swam in a river, or that they were smitten after he got drunk at a dance and fell insensible into her lap. Whatever the case, by around 14.30 they had met, and... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.